Asia Tech Podcast. 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 Hello, my name is Graham Brown. This is Asia Matters. Have we been here before? Looking at the rise of China, it's easy to think that it's different this time. But as an economist, every time you hear those words, "it's different this time," you start to get fearful that we've been here before. And you only have to look at the markets to understand that every time somebody says this is without precedent, that we're heading into a bubble, and we've seen this with Bitcoin, we've seen this with equities. You know, you go all the way back to those orchids traded in Amsterdam to understand that everything really has a pattern. And I want to sort of look deeper into China today. And really unpack this market and understand what kind of historical precedents there are in us in the you know the tech ecosystem understanding what happens next because we're at the verge of something very special. I'm not saying it's different this time, but you know we're on the verge of a shift, and every shift has a precedent. And obviously, there's hype, and there are things that are said which often. You know, lose perspective on what the reality is. There's no doubt that China is an amazing phenomenon, and it's really changing the game in the tech ecosystem globally. I mean, look at what Jack Ma's doing, getting out there and advocating indirectly. China, you know, the CEO of Alibaba, only recently at Davos. On screen, speaking English, and he, you know he speaks good English. He was once an English teacher, and then meeting Donald Trump, and you know he was promising Donald Trump that they would make a million jobs in the U.S. through the Alibaba e-commerce platform, which is refreshing because you know until that point, Donald Trump had painted Alibaba and all the Chinese cohort of. Uh, these, you know, these people were taking jobs from the US, but here was Jack Ma putting the shoe on the other foot, which was basically saying, hey, look, we're here to help revive the American economy. So to understand China, we really need to understand where we have come from and what happens next, because there's no doubt that China and the Chinese economy is having a huge impact on the rest of the world and there's a shift in the positioning the the cultural narratives that we're used to which this very sort of dominant narrative where the u.s dominates um and that applies to the startup ecosystem as well so silicon valley is without doubt the best startup ecosystem in the world has been whether it will continue to be so will will you know that will be something that will be left to places like shanghai or beijing or singapore even to pick up the mantle but we'll see what i'm interested in now is looking at china and i'm really interested in china in the context of japan and let me put this in into you know a bigger picture understanding of where we're going with this is that i moved to japan in 1995 and I was just a young guy back then, a few years ago, obviously, more than 20 years ago. And the reason I moved to Japan was, A, I was curious. I wanted to go and travel the world. And B, you go back to 1990s when I grew up. If you were graduating in the 1990s and you looked around and thought, where's the biggest opportunity out there today? 
you would have looked at Japan. In the same way, young people graduating today, young startup talent looks at China as the biggest opportunity. So Tokyo back in the 1990s would have been, to me, what Shanghai, Shenzhen, Hong Kong maybe, or Beijing are to the bright young things of this generation. And these are happening in different eras, but there are many similar patterns which I want to unpack today because it helps us understand the reality. There's a lot of hype, but there's a lot of good things coming out of China. And to better understand it and unpack the hype a little bit, we can understand how this impacts us. And by the way, go and check out the Ashley Talks podcast, which is coming out on the Asia Tech Podcast Network, because Ashley Galina does a great job of helping us understand China. And I think the real value add that she provides is she's coming from the outside, coming originally from Russia, but you know, she lives and lived in China. She worked in China. She's written a book about China. She speaks fluent Mandarin, etc. So she understands that, not as a Chinese person within China, which I think people say, oh, well, you know, you're not Chinese, you don't understand it. Well, I think people who move into a country from the outside understand it better than the locals, because the locals, obviously, they understand it fluently, and they understand all the nuances. However, they don't have a point of reference. So every time you take a point of reference, you get to understand how a market really looks, because, you know... If you are Chinese living in China, that's how things are here. You just take a lot of things for granted. Whereas if somebody comes from the outside, they can compare it to another cultural experience that they have. And this makes complete sense. So, for example, if somebody is talking about, well, this is the great greatest city in the world. Well, maybe it is. But what are you comparing it against? If you haven't lived in any other city in the world, then you don't really have a benchmark. However, if you've got something to compare it to then you can say this is a, a better city with a bit more authority. So I want to use this experience to benchmark and to make a comparison as well between China and Japan. And although they are completely different size, obviously China is 1.3 billion and Japan is 130,000 people. So it's, it's 10% of the size. There are many comparisons between their economic trajectory which I think we need to take into account. So going back to my story, 1995, I'd graduated, I'd looked around and thought, right, I'm going to Japan. And one of the reasons I was set on going to Japan was the stories coming out of Japan. So I knew people who'd moved to Japan and made a go of it. I knew teachers who were graduating and getting paid $50,000 a year working in Japan teaching English. Now, Fifty thousand dollars a year in 1995 for a 22-year-old, if I'm right, <laughs> I forgot my own age. 22-year-old, let's say early 20s, is a lot of money, and it's a lot of money when you don't have an industry of investment banking like you did in the, the late 90s. So it wasn't an opportunity or a possibility for me to graduate and then go and earn 100k in the city. That that kind of existence didn't wasn't an opportunity for me. It wasn't an option. And there were no startups back then in 1995. You know, 
we hadn't even got Netscape Navigator by 1995. I think it was, you know, Windows 95 wasn't even out in 1995 when I graduated. So 50,000 for a teacher of that age was an amazing opportunity. So I heard about these stories that people were going to Japan and all they had as a skill was the ability to speak English. And I could do that pretty well. I could turn up, get a job and from that go and do other things. And I knew people who started teaching English and then got into some of the large IT companies in Japan and really were made. You know, they had opportunities. Like People were appearing on TV. People were appearing on radio because they were foreign. So in some ways, there are, there are similarities between what's happening in China and what happened in Japan in the early 90s. And that excited me. And that's why I wanted to go to Japan. I heard about in Japan, there were golf clubs where the membership cost a million dollars because the asset bubble had inflated so much that there was so much money in the system that those who had the money didn't have enough things to buy with their money. So, you know, they were buying golf club memberships for a million dollars a year. It's you know, unheard of. I don't even know much how Donald Trump's golf club membership cost, but a million dollars a year was crazy. And then you had companies like Sony, Sony. So Sony was the Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I would argue that Sony was as prominent a global brand as Apple is today. Not as valuable, but in terms of innovation, Sony was number one. The Walkman, which for those of you who are on the right side of 35, doesn't really mean anything, but for my generation, the Walkman was a revolutionary product and Sony was a revolutionary company producing an amazing electronic goods. So to be closely associated with that company meant in many ways the same way a young graduate would look at Apple or they would look at getting an in with a company like Facebook because Sony was that. And it wasn't just Sony, there were a whole range of companies coming out of Japan who had these global names which were phenomenal which people wanted to work for Sony National NEC these are the, the names which probably now don't carry any kind of significant weight but you know even TDK I even knew I knew somebody a friend of mine who graduated from university I think with a geography degree went to went to Japan started teaching English, left, left his job after six months because he got a job offer working in the marketing department of YKK. Now, you probably don't know who YKK are, but the next time you look at your clothes, I don't know if they still do this, but YKK, and I don't know what it stands for, that that company name made i believe back then something like 85 percent of the world's zippers <laughs> and every single zipper that you ever had had the initials ykk on it but for him to go to japan and drop his teaching job get a job at ykk and i think he was earning crazy money like i don't know back then 70 or eighty thousand dollars, and he could hardly speak japanese but they just wanted a foreigner who could speak kind of 
to them in Japanese and who could obviously speak English and who could be part of their marketing department. So the opportunities were endless. So for me, as a young person moving to Japan, it made complete sense. So what are the parallels between where we are now with China and where we were back in the 90s in Japan? Well, let's understand Japan in the terms of where it was coming from. And we have to understand the asset bubble that was going on in Japan. And China, in some ways, has an asset bubble. But I don't want to use that to say that China's going to then, you know, it's going to hit the wall like Japan did. What I want to use that for is to say that there was a lot of hype and expectation about Japan back in the 80s and the 90s, which people started drawing a trajectory out and said, well, you know, if it grows at this rate and it continues growing at this rate for this many years... What happens next is, well, Japan takes over the world. Well, it didn't happen. Let's understand this a little bit. Ginza, which is like the upmarket district of uh, Tokyo. And if you ever visited Tokyo, it's right in the center. It's not far from the Imperial Palace. The real estate value at its peak so I think around about 19, no, sorry, 1992, 1993, the real estate in Ginza was selling at $139,000 per square foot. Let's think about that. $139,000 per square foot. <coughs> Excuse me. So if your average office is 600 square foot, do the math on that. That's... Well, 139, let's say $100,000 per square foot at 600, well, that's like $60 million for an office. $139,000 per square foot in Ginza in the, the early 90s. Compare that to what you'd pay on average in cities around the world today. In Hong Kong, which is one of the most expensive real, market, real estate markets in the world today, 11000 per square foot. So it's more than 10 times what you're paying in Hong Kong now. Tokyo now averages about 7,500 per square foot and London about 5,000. So the real estate in Ginza now is obviously a fraction of what it was. But back then it was 20 times what you would pay now in London and 10 times what you'd pay in Hong Kong. And that market was inflating rapidly. And th this is where we start to see parallels. Let's not just talk about real estate. Let's talk about the whole market. And, you know, you can take the context and understand it from that perspective. But the domain itself, so real estate or whether it's tech or whether it's investment, we have to understand that things don't always go in a straight line. But what we need to understand, the most important factor is that there are always historical precedents here. In 1985, the real estate market in Tokyo grew. The value, the average value in Tokyo in 1985 grew 42%. Can you imagine that? Real estate prices inflate 42% in one year across the city. And then in 1986, it grew another 46%. So it more than doubled in two years in the mid-80s. And this was the beginning of a... a a massive asset bubble. And 
as is always the case, when this happens, people look around and say, it's different this time. They were talking about the Japanese economic miracle, which it was in many respects, but it wasn't a miracle in the sense that it operated beyond the laws of physics. There was a clear driver of this market. There was a very, very strong economy. There was a lot of internal investment and there was a lot of uh, inflation of the asset prices beyond their real value. So what banks were doing is they're lending to companies and companies were then going using that money rather than building the company, they were going and buying assets in the sense of you know buying real estate and banks were buying real estate as well. So you had this sort of compounding up of speculation and that created this huge, crazy asset bubble. But people were saying, oh, it's different this time. Japan's going to take over the world. And there was a good reason why people were saying that was because the trajectory of Japan was just phenomenal. Look at the stock market. So the Nikkei, the Nikkei grew from 7,000, starting point of 7,000, just taking this as a starting point in 1984. So at the peak, on the 29th of December, 1989, so at the end of the year, so in five years, it grew from 7,000 to 40,000. Now, I don't even think you can see that in the, the the NASDAQ in its growth way back. If you go back to the 90s and the, the huge inflation of the, the NASDAQ prices. So 7,000 to 40,000. And what that did was it made people look around and say, wow, Japan is something amazing. This is going to go on forever. What's wrong with us? A lot of people were scratching their heads and thinking, why is Japan blowing up and leaving the rest of the world behind? Because in the mid 80s, and this is going back to my story, if you were growing up as a teenager in the mid 80s, the rest of the world wasn't a great place to live in. Apart from that small spike that we had in the mid 80s of the, you know the liberalization of the the stock markets and the financial industry that that soon imploded after that the the 80s was a pretty dire place to to grow up there wasn't a lot of opportunity a lot of the traditional industries around the world were stagnating and we didn't have the internet back then we didn't really have technology because the Japanese were dominating everything. Every tape player, every VCR, every TV was Japanese. And it was made in Japan back then. It wasn't made, outsourced into China. And you look at the cars as well. The cars we were making were crap compared to what Toyota was pushing out or Nissan was pushing out. And people were looking around and thinking, what is going on? There was something happening in Japan. People wanted to understand it, which was exactly the right thing to do. And they were talking about the Japanese philosophy. People started learning about Toyota. People started learning about the Toyota way. They started learning about concepts like Kaizen, which was that constant improvement. And we learned a lot in the process, which is without doubt, it wasn't, you know, a zero sum game at the end of the day when Japan imploded. Everybody learned a lot. They learned there was a lot to learn in improving the Western management and technology uh, processes, which Japan had really mastered very well. But the whole thing imploded. Japan imploded. And I want to look at that because 
you know, the understanding what happened in Japan gives us a bit of precedent of what may happen in China. I'm not saying China's going to implode because there are many differences too, which we need to unpack. But the point is, is that the trajectory won't continue at the same pace. So we have to step back a little bit when people say, and I'm guilty of this as well, that China is coming and it's going to take over and it's the best market out there. Then we have to step back a little bit and say, okay, I've heard this before. When you hear people say this is without precedent, you know, that's a danger sign. And you go by, go back way to the, go way back to the eighties. And I heard that before. I think it was Francis Fukuyama who wrote the article, The End of History. And he wrote an article in Newsweek, I believe, or it might have been Time, The End of History, which was all about the fall of the Berlin Wall and how that that moment, that seminal moment, meant that history as we knew it was over. That whole history of conflict between red and blue, east and west, good and bad, black and white had finished because the fall of the Berlin Wall ushered in a new era, which was an era of uh, unilateral politics in the sense that we no longer existed in a world where it was Reagan versus Brezhnev or, you know, where it was everybody pointing their weapons at each other from the other side of the Berlin Wall. And in some ways, that was a a brave opinion piece to write. And some of the aspects were correct. But the big, the fundamental error in Fukuyama's writing was that there were, there was going to be uh, a, a different era ushered in, that there was no precedent, that, you know, this was a new era of politics. And say goodbye to the dualistic politics that we've known for generations. And every time there's been a big change in the political, geopolitical landscape in the world, it's always reverted back to dualistic politics. You know, that is the precedent. We've seen it before. There's patterns wherever it is. And it doesn't have to be America versus Russia. It could be France versus the UK or UK or Britain versus Spain. It, it's always happened. There's always been that precedent. When one superpower yields, another superpower comes along. And within time, there's always conflict. So the point I want to make is that when we look at China and we want to understand the startup ecosystems, that there are precedents for understanding where it goes next. Because we've kind of been here before with Japan. And everything being said about China now has been said about Japan. Think about it. That China will become the world's biggest economy. That was said about Japan too. And there was a reason that if you look at Japan's growth, and Japan grew, just put this into some context that you understand, that in the 70s, so Japan became the world's third largest economy behind the US and the USSR, so the old Soviet Union. It was the third biggest economy. So it already overtaken the United Kingdom and Germany and was number three. And it had grown at the beginning of the, the, the decade, 
1970, Japan was $2,000 GDP per capita, and by the end, it was 9500 So it had grown nearly five times in a de- decade. So can you imagine that? If you were living in Japan in the 70s, what kind of wealth creation you would have seen around you? You would have come from a country which was destroyed by war, and no other country had been destroyed and bombed in many different ways to the degree that Japan had been destroyed. Everything was lost. However, they had managed to expand the economy five times in 10 years. And, you know, that speed of change, I don't even know we're seeing that kind of speed of change in China. And there's a reason for that. I mean, obviously, China is 10 times bigger than Japan. So it's very difficult to expand at five times over a decade. I don't know what kind of GDP growth rate you need to do that. But I mean, have a look at what Japan achieved. An average of 7 to 11%, which is almost the same as China in particular. And this is, this is amazing when you look at the data. In 1973, the Japanese GDP per capita grew in one year, 34%. And in 1978, it grew 39%. We don't, I've never seen, unless, unless, you know, the only time you ever see these numbers is in some crazy small country in the world that's either, you know, it's come from nothing and then increased 39% in a year. And that's nothing because it's, you know, from zero, any kind of increase is, is large. But for an economy which was already the third largest in the world, these kind of growth rates are unheard of. And I don't want to say it's without precedent because we're getting into dangerous territory here. What I want to say is that Japan was growing at a phenomenal rate in the 70s. And it made people sit up and think in the same way China is growing at a phenomenal rate now. If you consider even like 6.7%, 7% that it's growing at now. To understand it in the context of how big China is, it really is phenomenal in terms of that wealth creation. Well, we've seen that before. We've seen that wealth creation happen before in Japan. So Japan became the third worldest, third worldest, that's not the word, third largest economy in the 70s. And it finished the, the decade in 1980 at $9,000. $9, per head in the 1980s so you would have thought well where can it go from here because it has to slow down in the same way that china has to slow down at some point it can't keep continuing to grow at at double digits every year well japan proved that it could japan went from nine thousand dollars in 1980 to 1990 where this is the point where i had become set on moving to japan In 1990, Japan's GDP per capita was 23,800, which was number one in the world. So Japan became the richest country in the world in 1990 per capita. And people were looking at it and thinking, this is a miracle. This is different this time. And if we want to understand it, we have to accept that Japan's taking over. And there's a very good reason that you could look at Japan and think, well, this is the future. In 1990, Japan had the world's largest bank, the world's largest insurance company, and the world's largest stock exchange by aggregate value. So 
We've been here before. When I look at China and we hear the same things, China has the world's largest bank and it has possibly the world's largest e-commerce company, etc. It's all the, the superlatives that we hear thrown around about China. They were all said about Japan. And remember, Japan was one-tenth the size of China. So in that sense, there's, there's precedent. We can see where we come from and we can see where it may go. And what I want to do is talk about where the differences are. So it's not inevitable. China won't implode. I don't think it will implode in the same way Japan will. But the takeaway for us in the startup ecosystem is to understand what is hype and what is reality. Because we can make some very bad decisions if we assume in the same way people assumed about Japan that everything was good. So obviously we're just around the corner from 2020 and that's a seminal moment when China will become the world's largest economy. In the same way, Japan didn't become the world's largest economy. Again, it was like one-tenth the size of China, but on GDP per capita alone, it did. China will become the world's largest economy. That's that's a fact. I mean, unless something terrible happens in the next year, touch wood it doesn't, then that's going to happen. It only has to grow a few percent to overtake the US. And the US is just bumbling along at 2% a year. So it's a almost certainty. So that's a seminal moment. And people now are starting to wake up about China and trying to understand it. And because there's a sense of fear and there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of people pushing China and there's a lot of people scared of China and you've got Donald Trump telling us that China's going to take over and then you've got all the good things coming out of China. People are trying to make sense of this all in the same way people were trying to make sense of Japan back in the 1980s and a lot of people got it wrong and it's a lot easier to understand looking back. So what I want to do is understand China now by looking back at Japan and seeing what's similar and what's different. So hopefully we've got that picture of where we are, that there are precedent, that people were saying the same things about Japan that they're saying about China now. And, it, you know, not just in terms of the numbers, just look at the the cultural aspects of that rise that really hammered home the message that Japan was something to, that we needed to pay attention to. I believe that it was a Japanese investor who bought Van Gogh's The Sunflowers, which was the most expensive painting in the world. I think that was a seminal moment. I think it sold for like 25 million pounds or something. I could actually remember that happening as a kid, seeing that on TV and it, you know, why are these Japanese companies buying everything? And they weren't just buying sunflowers, the, the, uh, the painting, they were buying golf clubs. So all over the US, Japanese companies, companies mostly were buying golf clubs because they were seeking outsized returns. They had so much money in Japan and Japan was a crowded market. There were, there was too many people chasing too few deals. There was so much money in all of these companies that they had to start looking abroad for better returns in the same way. We're now starting to see that in China. You know, if you are a e-commerce company in China, 
you're now going to get better returns outside of China by investing your money in Southeast Asia or taking your e-commerce platform to the US. That's just a natural extension because a market becomes crowded. You have to then go and look for bigger returns. And if you have a competitive market where a lot of investors are seeking big returns, they want your company to have that growth story to tell them that you're going to 10x it. And that's great. So that forces a lot of companies to look outside. And that is now encouraging this capital movement outside of this risk capital movement outside of China into these new markets. And that's fueling a second boom in all of these markets around Southeast Asia, especially in e-commerce, which is phenomenal. So that happened in the 80s with Japanese risk capital. They couldn't get those crazy 34% returns that I talked about in Japan anymore. So they were taking their cash and they were going buying real estate all over the world. They're buying in Hawaii. You know, if you've ever read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, second generation Japanese, funny enough, but that's of no consequence. He talks about real estate and how his rich dad, which was not his real dad, he's not his biological father, but he was a mentor, became super rich by investing in real estate in Hawaii. And the reason why Hawaii real estate blew up and grew was because, you know, uh, compared to the rest of the US, obviously, is because of Japanese risk, risk capital. It came out of Japan and Japanese investors were buying real estate in Hawaii like crazy. In the same way, Chinese have been buying real estate in, in Hong Kong or Vancouver or Singapore. So we've been here before, golf clubs, sunflowers. And then I think as well, it's just interesting. It's a little known story is that the Japanese Wrestling Association paid for Muhammad Ali, who was the world champion boxer at the time. And I think he had retired at the time. So it didn't need to box and had made a lot of money. But the, the JWA paid for Muhammad Ali to fly out to Japan to fight the champion wrestler in Japan as a, it's a celebrity fight in the same way we've seen that with, uh, Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. It's just a money fight. And so they flew him out to fight, fight Inoki and. It just goes to show that Japan at the time had the cash to lavish on these extravaganzas and they had the cash in the same way China has the cash to do these kind of things now. So there's a precedent there and the, the, the economies follow a similar pattern in that they both started as export fueled economies. So China, obviously manufacturing, Japan, industry and manufacturing. And, you know, as I said, going back to the 80s, every single electronic item had made in Japan on it, which just seems crazy now. But back then that became natural. I mean, you just didn't buy TVs, TV sets from the West. I mean, you were, you were crazy. You, you bought a Japanese TV set because it was the best. It was quality. It didn't break. So these were export-fueled economies. And as with every export-fueled economy, the, the economy has to evolve 
to maintain that growth rate. And what happens is, is that Japan moves from export driven to domestic demand. And that's the only way to maintain economic growth. So all that money that's generated from exporting creates this wealth of of foreign reserve, which has to be spent. You know, they've got all these dollars. What do they do with it? Well, they have to buy stuff. So Japan started buying everything they could, and they became this avaricious consumer culture, which was buying you know, everything from Fendi to Gucci to Prada. In the late 80s, we had the same phenomenon that you're seeing now or until recently uh, of these shoppers coming from Japan, going to Europe on these tours and just buying everything. So they would go on factory tours of Gucci and Prada and buy everything that they could and just take it back to Japan, even though they could buy it in Japan. And in the same way, Chinese have been doing this all over Asia or Europe. As they say here in Japan, there's a word, bakugai, which basically breaks down. Baku means explode, and gai means buy, shopping. So explosive shopping, and it's a word used to describe Chinese tourists. And these are the tourists that come to Japan, and they come to the Louis Vuitton store in Japan in a coach and they buy everything and it's the kind of behavior that japan exhibited in the 80s they would do the same in paris or milan when i was in there japan in the 90s the early 90s i i was teaching english i knew students who would go on these tours and bear in mind this was kind of the end of the bubble in japan so even though japan had economically exploded and collapsed by 1995 the behaviors were still there so i had students who were 18 19 20 and they would save up and go on a factory tour and their holiday their vacation for a week would be fly to paris and then fly to milan and in milan they would go on a factory tour of all the designer factories where they would land in milan in a coach would take them around the outlet factories of Prada, of Gucci, of Fendi, Ferragamo, all these brand names, these, these high-end luxury brands. And all they would do for a week is just shop. So that's the domestic demand-fueled economy that Japan became. And it sort of created that cultural narrative about Japanese abroad, which people kind of got used to in the same way we're getting used to it in China now. But that also evolves that when you got to Japan in the nineties, that, that stereotype about the Japanese was already old. So to think that the Japan were, was this nation of loud consumers is, is, was already old by the nineties. And it's, it's interesting because I, I, I recorded that Ashley talks uh, with Ashley this week. And she was saying that that, stereotype especially in the tier one cities in china so you go to shanghai or beijing or guangzhou or shenzhen that that narrative about chinese consumers is, is done it's gone it's it's history already that yeah sure there are those loud consumers who just buy everything because it's a brand you know they walk around with the big t-shirt with the biggest brand label on it or the hat with the big brand 
on it, the logo, the trademark, whatever, they exist, but increasingly less and more so in the, 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 the smaller cities. And I say smaller, but these cities are like 10, 15 million people, but they're less sort of exposed to travel. And there's that sort of pattern which they're following, which is, you know, you go from a, an economy driven purely by manufacturing and export into one driven by domestic demand where you have these loud consumers and then one into an economy where the consumers become very sophisticated. And that's interesting because that happened in Japan as well. And at the same time, a similar parallel shift between, you know, from industry into technology, which is really what happens in Japan, heavy manufacturing into technology and the same with China as well. Going back to the consumers, now shifting into an era where you have these very advanced, sophisticated consumers who have seen everything and are difficult to please, difficult to please, and in many ways teach brands about how they need to do their business. It's not about, you know, you don't go to China and go and educate consumers in the same way in the 80s. You didn't go to Japan and educate, educate consumers. You did at the beginning, but after that, they knew wine. They knew about dairy products. They knew about brands, and they knew more than Western consumers knew. So there are many precedences there to help us understand China. And that helps us understand the pattern. It also helps us understand where we go next. Right now in China, we're seeing companies like Tencent or Alibaba push out into the world and as I explained earlier, a lot of that is because they're seeking returns which just aren't available anymore in China because it's so advanced and they need to go to frontier markets looking for those returns. And that precedent happened already in, in Japan. And there's this word in Japanese, keiretsu, which basically means conglomerate. I think in Korea, they have these chai bowls as well, which is like the Samsungs, the Hyundais and so on. But Japan had them as well. And really what they are is they're like clubs where a bank and a trading company and a manufacturing company would all work together. And they would all work together for a common good. They wouldn't compete, which is what you would expect in a, a free market, but these were not free markets. Japan is not a free market and China is not a free market. It's very much dominated by this Keiretsu um, mindset, which as much as Tencent and Alibaba are competing against each other, they have their own coterie of, of companies that they work with. And if you look at the telecoms industry in the 90s in Japan, and this is where the biggest parallels are, because I think this is the starting point in terms of understanding what happens next, is that in Japan in 1998, it had iMode, which was the world's first internet on the mobile phone. When the rest of the world was still just getting used to SMS, Japan was logging on and accessing internet on the mobile phone and they weren't just accessing stocks as people could have done in the west on their sms they were accessing music payment systems brands marketing and so on so when people talk about wechat we've got to understand that yes wechat is sophisticated and developed and one of the most advanced internet on the mobile services in the world 
but it's not in any way of a quality where you can say we haven't been here before because even though it was black and white a 9.6k and we're competing with WAP in the days Japan had the most sophisticated and advanced mobile uh, ecosystem in the world in 1998 with iMode and NTT Docomo and it, again it was built on a Kalitsa model which is basically NTT Docomo was the carrier and it had its pals which were the the three or four handset manufacturers whether it was you know national panasonic or nec or sony and or mitsubishi as well manufacturing phones then and it would create these this this whole ecosystem around uh this desire to to make the lives better of the consumers in the same way if you look at Tencent and WeChat, it's the same thing. It's, as Asi would say, the operating system. In the same way, NTT Docomo and iMode was an operating system. And it had its own, it was the first, uh, how do I put this? It's the first ecosystem of applications well before Apple gave us the App Store or Google had Google Play. NTT Docomo had iAppoli, which was an ecosystem. So if you were an app developer, you could put your app on the Docomo platform in 1998-1999 we're talking nearly 20 years ago and get paid and you would have got 11% or 10% I believe sorry no no you would have got 90% and Docomo would have taken 10% so Docomo created this ecosystem in the same way that Tencent created WeChat and you know it had an advanced payment system and people marvel at how advanced mobile payments are in China, and for good reason, because they really are advancing rapidly towards a cashless society. However, it's not without precedent. Back in 1998, 20 years ago, there were mobile payments in Japan, well ahead of the rest of the world. So we had to understand that there are patterns which we follow here. And I think it's useful because what happened next was interesting. Docomo tried to take IMO to the rest of the world and they acquired, they didn't outright acquire, but they invested in a whole bunch of operators, mobile carriers around the world, KPN in the Netherlands and Orange or O2, sorry, O2 in the UK, a few others as well. Maybe something in Spain. They took sort of stake, stakes in these companies because they wanted to export iMode. And what they found was that because the real value of their market was built around this KDETSA model, because it required the integration with the bank, with the payment system and integration with the handsets, is that when they went into a market where they didn't have that, they failed. And I don't think Alibaba is, sorry, not Alibaba, or even Tencent, is going to go into these markets and repeat those mistakes. However, I don't think that WeChat will succeed in that operating system model in the same way it has succeeded domestically because it just doesn't have that Kdetsu backing that it does domestically. And yes, it will, will succeed as a messenger and maybe as an internet platform, but you know, once you start trying to integrate payments, that's the tough challenge. That's where Docomo failed. Maybe Tencent and Alibaba will learn their lessons and they sh certainly should do if they're looking 
how to take this thing globally. But absolutely, there are parallels. But okay, I just want to finish off by finish off by talking about the differences because I've talked a lot about how these are similar markets. But let's talk about the differences and just rounding up here. Back in 1990, and you know, looking at the the trajectory of Japan and how it's going to take over the world, and looking now at China, there are major differences. And even though the fate of China is not sealed, and in, I don't think it, it will in any way resemble what happened to Japan, there are similarities. But we can only understand the similarities by looking at the differences, really. And Asia was very different back then. Asia now is an increasingly wealthy continent and group of trading nations. By 2025, Asia will become the biggest economy as a, as a region in the world. And most of it, 60, I think 60% of its trade will become internal. That's very different to where we were in 1990. Whereas you know, if you were in Japan in 1990, you couldn't have made anything out of the import-export business between Japan and the rest of Asia. Maybe there was Hong Kong, maybe there was Singapore, but these were tiny, tiny economies compared to Japan. China didn't have the wealth it does today. And Southeast Asia was, well, forget it. So it was all Japan export to Europe and the, the US and Canada. So... Asia was very, very different. Asia is very much self-sufficient today. So we are in a very different market. So in that sense, Japan may be imploded because it didn't have that, that local demand that we have now in Asia. I mean, that is a much more of a, an asset that China can play with. So Asia was very different. The internet was very different. And the reason why that's important was you know that if you're a chinese company now it's a lot easier to go global than it is back in 1990 for a japanese manufacturer if you were manufacturing goods back in 1990 you had to export goods whereas if you're a chinese internet company now you already have a common ground where you can export your business without actually physically exporting it so you could actually be in other countries without actually going there so it's a lot easier to go global and for that reason maybe maybe that uh there's less reason why it will implode and lastly size so going back to the starting point japan is 130 million people whereas china is 1.3 billion obviously that's a starting point where you could say, well, Japan just wasn't big enough. The reason why Japan imploded was that it just didn't have enough of a market to continually export and push its goods and services and keep finding those outsized returns that it needed to maintain that trajectory. And, and once it started slowing down, the whole thing collapsed. Because, you know, it was then reliant on 130 million people, which was just a tiny market compared to the economy of Japan. And China itself is 1.3 billion. So you could say that China is like 10 Japans all sort of evolving 
in in lockstep. So you know you have the first tranche of tier one cities, which is Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, etc., which are all evolving, and that's 130 million people. And then you've got this next level, which is the Tianjin's and whatever Fuzhou's. I don't know. You, you need to be an expert on China to understand the geography. But you know there are 15 cities in China bigger than New York. So there's this second tranche of Japan coming along. So where Japan only had one, Japan has China has ten coming through the ranks. Like these, you know, those as economists like to sort of picture it. It's that that basketball going through the hose pipe visual, right? So there's like ten of those going through the hose pipe in terms of the these markets evolving. And Japan just didn't have that. It only had one and then it collapsed. Whereas China has like this succession. So that will continue growing. So China won't collapse. And I think that's not on the cards unless something unforeseen happens. Uh, Kim Jong fires a missile. I don't know. But I think, you know, I'm not talking about it from the context of economics. I'm talking about it from the context of the startup ecosystem and, and why we need to understand that precedent. Because when we understand the precedent, we can understand, okay, yep, China is special. China is important. However, you know, to say that this is without precedent, to say that it's different, is also to lose perspective. And we need to constantly maintain perspective because a lot of people are going to get burnt. A lot of people are going to lose their livelihoods. A lot of people are going to lose their money in China, on China, with China, because they get carried away. They get excited. They get fearful. They get greedy. And these are the, always the wrong emotions to have as an investor in a market. Those are where people got burnt. And in the same way, people have got burnt on Bitcoin. And if you draw the parallels between Bitcoin and China, they're there. I'm not saying in any way China is a bubble market, but there are parallels in the sense of what the way people pile into a market is that, you know, people, when you have taxi drivers telling you, uh, you know, when it's like $10,000 for a Bitcoin um, to get into Bitcoin, you know, it's time to bail out of the market. You know, Bitcoin went up to what, 17,000, went down to 8,000. But the point is, is, that's not the important thing. The point is, is that, you know, blockchain is what is going to impact us longer, long term. But the, the price of Bitcoin is really neither here nor there. Blockchain is the more fundamental change for us. It's the same way in China. It's like you've got to separate the hype. You've got to separate the hype from reality. And as investors and startup founders, we have to understand that, you know, what's really happening here. And understanding the hype means looking at Japan, looking at what was hype before, what was reality, what happened at the end of it and what came out of it. And in the same way, can we can apply that perspective, that lens to understanding China better because China is the bigger story of our generation. And it will be surrounded by fear and opportunity and greed. And to optimize yourself, to make a better decision about China, we have to remove the emotion from the analysis. And the only way to do that is to look at it logically and in the historical perspective. And hopefully I've done that for you today. I've helped you understand it. And what do you think? Do you think it's, it's hype? 
I mean, I, I'm totally bullish on China, but I, as I said, you know, it's like I've seen it before. And when I hear people say that, you know, this is going to scale until heaven, then I know absolutely that's wrong. And when I hear, for example, that it's the most advanced market in the world, I've heard it before. So maybe you have as well. Curious to hear your uh, your thoughts. You can tweet me at Asia Tech Pod or at Graham D. Brown. You can find me on LinkedIn at Graham D. Brown. This is Asia Tech Podcast. You can find us at atp.show where you can go and listen into the other shows on the network and go and check out Ashley's show as well, which I think is phenomenal. Ashley talks as well as, I mean, we did talk about China and WeChat in the show, myself and Simon Kemp on Digital Lives Asia, which is atp.show slash DLA. I'll be back next week. More insights from Asia Manners. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. 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 Podcast.